Welcome to Martha Runs the World, a podcast with a new take on running, fitness, and all things health-oriented. I'm Martha Hughes, your host, and each week I present a new topic that is of interest to all runners. Hi, and welcome to episode 235 of Martha Runs the World. This week I'm going to focus on exercise history and some of the strange exercise equipment that we humans have used over the years. I thought it would be kind of fun to step back and see what was going on and what our ancestors used and how we came to what we use today. And stay tuned for afterwards and I'll tell you a little bit about my running progress as I started running just this week. Homo sapiens have been obviously active since before we were, well, human, but exercise for the sake of exercise is something entirely different. While we were trying to survive, hunting and gathering or tilling the fields or living in existence just to survive, there was zero downtime and there was no thought towards anything but work and sleep and eating and just trying to survive. So there wasn't anything like, let's just exercise to keep fit because basically all your time was just trying to keep alive. In 2500 BC, that's the first time that we know of where the, any mention of exercise was made. Confucius mentioned the need to engage in physical activity to avoid stoppage of organ malfunction. I think he was on to something, wasn't he? This led to Kung Fu, that's C-O-N-G, Kung Fu gymnastics taught by Tao priests involving postures and breathing techniques. In India, yoga dates back to five, dates back 5,000 years. And fitness then uh, as well was many times was centered around young men preparing for battle. And then on their off time, they used fitness as a sort of pleasure because being fit for battle was, of course, what they needed to do. But they also found it kind of fun to engage in in games while they when they weren't at war or in battle. It was kind of fun to do that. And then it it involved in other things. But as empires grew wealthier and more stable fitness levels dropped. So when there wasn't wartime, there wasn't the games that the men prepared for war in, <laughs> if that makes any sense. If we look at Europe, exercise started with ancient ancient Greece. Ballistic training involved throwing heavy stones one-handed. Plyometrics included long jumping with weights, vertical jumps and vaulting on horseback with a pole. Calisthenics included the most events, and these would be drill-like marching, running, gymnastic, acrobatic-type events, dancing, war dancing, basically, swimming and diving, driving a chariot, and rope climbing. Strengthening and Strength and weight training were another class of events and included stone lifting, carrying a heavy weight, rowing and digging. Yes, digging was a very important event, apparently. They thought that it was important to the the movements in digging were was a very, very important event for them, apparently. <laughs> uh, games included Greek wrestling, boxing called pygmachia, 
and hockey, which is kind of similar to field hockey played today. Rome had many of the same exercises and games as the Greeks, and they added a few of their own, including javelin throwing, marching 25K in five hours, marching 12K with 12 kilograms of weight, hunting, chopping wood, fencing, archery, and darts. Medieval Europe, again, they continued many of the same games that the Greeks and Romans used and invented a few of their own, which include climbing up walls, dancing while wearing armor. I kid you not. Why am I picturing a knight of the round table like right out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail? <laughs> Gymnastics, again, wearing full armor. Can you picture it? Parallel bars wearing all that armor. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just hilarious to me. Vaulting over a wooden horse, horse riding skills, pushing heavy stones, jousting, of course, and tug-of-war. In the Renaissance, they added acrobatics, long-distance horse riding. And, of course, they, they also still did jousting because it looks so good. Tug-of-war, that's still around today. You see that. And many of the same things that they still had, that they had previously. In the 1750s to the 1950s, they also, they added some things, chin-ups, and of course, uh, chin-ups were added, balancing on beams, pole vault, boxing, soccer, football, cricket, baseball, tennis, cycling, running, long-distance walking. I know in the 1800s, long-distance walking was very popular. Of course, all these activities were geared towards men. For women, things were a little different. Activities geared towards women were more geared towards what they thought their traits were. Assumed traits for women were seen as, women were seen as the weaker sex. They weren't seen as, as being as physically strong, and they didn't think they were able to endure things as much, so they had different focus. Agility was more of a focus. Uh, there were reductions in power and endurance. Women weren't supposed to train like men because of fertility. It was thought to hurt women. So they had more of a focus on jumping, archery, fencing, swimming, ball games, racket sports, and gymnastics. But gymnastics are like really can really, really hurt a person. So that's, I think I find that kind of funny. Now, the history of equipment is where things take a really, really interesting turn for me. I'm going to start with treadmills because treadmills have a fascinating history. Treadmills, the best information I found out about treadmills came from a really, really great article from this website. Now, I will include the, the link to the website so you can read the whole article. It has some really cool pictures in it as well. And it's a really well-written piece, so if you want to read it yourself, I will put that in the website, MarthaRunsTheWorld.com, so you can read it. Nearly 52 million people in the U.S. use the treadmill for exercise. Now, it, the treadmill was not designed first for exercise. 200 years ago, the treadmill was invented in England as a prison rehabilitation device. 
It was meant to cause the incarcerated to suffer and learn from their sweat. I would say on that note, they greatly succeeded because treadmills are still making people suffer. (laughs) But along with the suffering, it also would mill a bit of corn or pump some water as a bonus. William Cubitt, Cubitt, C-U-B-I-T-T, was a civil engineer raised in a family of millwrights, created the treadmill, which was also called a treadwheel in the early days, in 1818. Cubitt's early attempt at the treadmill's design took many forms, including two wheels you walked on whose cogs interlocked. But the most popular addition which was installed at Brixton Prison in London, involved a wide wheel. Prisoners pressed down with their feet on steps embedded in the wheel, which moved it, presenting them with the next step. Picture it like like the sport of log rolling, only the log-like wheel was fixed in place. The Brixton treadmill was hooked up to subterranean machinery that ground corn. It wasn't fun. Well, treadmills aren't fun any anyway, so even if you do one by choice, it's not really fun. This treadmill could hold as many as 24 prisoners standing side by side along the wheel. Some devices at other prisons were smaller, and most treadmills soon included partitions so convicts could not socialize. They slogged for 10 hours a day in summer and a mere seven in winter. But can you imagine those winters in Britain are not, not warm. They're very, very cold. So you're out there, maybe it's 30 degrees, maybe it's colder, maybe it's 10 degrees, and you're out there for seven hours. Holy cow. The invention arrived at an apt time. At the end of the 18th century, the British began reforming their prisons. According to the historian U.R.Q. Henrique's 1972 article, The Rise and Decline of the Separate System of Prison Discipline, prisons previously offered their occupants next to nothing. Families had to bring in food and blankets, and the bribing of guards was rampant. As prisons began providing necessities, People worried that the poor would commit crimes just to get free stuff. Such luxuries needed to be offset by labor. Ideally, labor that was painful and possibly even pointless. Recruitment of the next generation of hardened criminals was rampant in prisons. Poor kids who came in for petty crimes would leave with contacts and lockpicking and other subversive skills. Prison administrators wanted both to rehabilitate and to keep people separate. The partition treadmills delivered on both fronts. The long hours on it were very boring and physically exhausting. But it soon began to be used less as a work machine than as a torture device. At first, it was used to grind corn or pump water or as a means of exercise. But it soon became a mere method of punishment, grinding air, Henrique's writes. According to the historian Dave A. Shate, by 1842, treadmills were being used in 109 of 200 jails across England, Scotland, and Wales. The likes of Oscar Wilde, imprisoned for gross indecency, worked the treadmill. 
But over time, the device's ability to cure criminality through sweat, never mind the actual work output, was called into question. For instance, a short article called Prison Electricity in an 1882 edition of Scientific America called for a more productive approach to treadmilling. The convicts hated it, and no useful results came of it, the author writes. The suggestion was for attaching dynamo-electric machines to the cranks to store electrically the energy developed. It argued that prisons could sell energy and thus pay for their own upkeep. Meanwhile, treadmills were clearly not that safe. An 1885 British Medical Journal article called Death on the Treadmill chastised Durham Prison for the treadmill-induced death of a prisoner with heart disease. Its overall high death rate at one fatality a week prompted the conclusion that the treadmill wasn't safe. The treadmill came to America in 1822 and was set up in four different prisons. It was briefly popular at the prison on East 26th Street in New York City. The first one installed there, which cost $3,000 to build, busied 16 prisoners at a time who ground 40 to 60 bushels of corn a day. Within two years, the prison had built three more, two of them used by women. But by 1827, the mills had fallen into only sporadic use and then were abandoned when the prison relocated. In Newgate, Charleston, and Philadelphia, treadmills were installed, used sparingly, and given up on short order. Outside the prison walls, there was labor shortage. Instead of milling a few dozen bushels of corn a day, work that an animal could do, These convicts were making shoes, clothing, hardware, furniture, rifles, and clocks. Private manufacturers brought raw materials or unfinished products into the prison and paid for the labor. It resurfaced in 1913 with a U.S. patent for a training machine. In the 1960s, the American mechanical engineer William Staub created a home fitness machine called the Pacemaster 600. He began manufacturing home treadmills in New Jersey. He used it often himself right up until the months before his death at age 96. And now it's a top-selling piece of exercise equipment all over the world. Like I said, I'll have the link for the piece on the website. The ancient Greeks developed among the first free weights with a hole for gripping rather than a handle called halters or halteres. Fast forward to the middle 19th century, where William B. Curtis, known as Father Bill in the fitness world, is the manager of Hubert Ottignan's Metropolitan Gymnasium in Chicago. While there, he was awarded a patent for the first flywheel and ratchet rowing machines in 1871. By mid-20th century, hydraulic-designed rowers were being mass-manufactured by the Narragansett Machine Company in Rhode Island. The precursor to modern-day plate-loading machines is a Smith machine, which was developed by the legendary Jack LaLanne, whom I'm sure you all have heard of, who created a sliding apparatus in his gym in the 1950s. Entrepreneur Rudy Smith then installed a modified model in a Vic Tanny's Jim, he was managing at the time, by 
the end of the 50s, the Smith machine was being manufactured and sold more widely. Jack LaLanne, the fitness world owes everything to that man. I remember when I was a little girl watching his show every day with my mom. He was fit before anyone else. I remember on TV, he was the only really fit guy or the first really fit guy. Everyone else came after him. Before Even before running was popular, before eating healthy and organic and all that stuff, he was there. He was there before anyone else. He was the true master of fitness. In 1989, Gary Jones, founder of Hammer Strength, took plate-loading machines in a direction designed to simplify the biomechanics of lifting weights while matching machine movement to a human motion. We were the first to apply commercially ergonomics and alignment of the joint's motion to commercial products, he said. An important part of innovation is gradual process. The Wright brothers didn't invent a 747. That came along a thousand ideas later. I worked as a firefighter, and they taught us that our job was to make things better for the people in need, right here, right now. We've taken that sense of urgency and that sense of incremental improvement on a rapid pace to evolve and improve the product. Stationary bikes date back to the end of the 18th century, featuring an ancestor called the Gymnasticon, a contraption that utilized flywheels connected to treadles. Treadles? Treadles. Not sure how to pronounce that. Sorry if I mispronounced it. In 1968, inventor Keen P. Dimmick created a technology breakthrough, the first electronic exercise bike called the Life Cycle. In 1977, Augie Nieto incorporated the company as Life Cycle Inc., which would become Life Fitness. In 1977, the Life Cycle was approaching 10 years in the market, yet in its second evolution, and it was still very much a cutting-edge product that many clubs were just seeing for the first time, he said. I believe the Life Cycle launched the industry's love affair with computer-controlled cardiovascular products that ultimately expanded what had been predominantly a barbell and dumbbell gym business into what we know today to be an incredibly diverse fitness industry. We'll be right back. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. There are a range of other firsts, such as resistant bands, resistance bands in the 1980s, the first stair climber in the mid-80s, and the ellipticals in the 90s. What these developments all have in common is that they were driven by a combination of innovation and exercisers' desires to find new and different ways to work out. You know, the stair climbers at my gym are scary medieval things. They look like contraptions from the Dark Ages. I swear they really do. 
I've only used them one time because they're a little intimidating. And I'm afraid of if I fall, it's going to like swallow me up. <laughs> I don't know. They're really scary. <laughs> Swedish physician, Dr. Gustav Zander helped pioneer mechanotherapy on the promotion of health and healing through the use of exercise apparatus. Xander was a Swedish physician who began his work in the 1860s, so he's way ahead of his time. He is known for inventing a therapeutic method of exercise carried out by means of a special apparatus. His ideas of regular exertion using machines to honor health and well-being was certainly a novel idea in his age when bloodletting and noxious humors were still pretty standard. He would further develop these devices, going on to win a gold medal at the 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia for his exercise machines. In the 1970s, Arthur Jones invented machines known as Nautilus to aid with high-intensity training. Now, the Nautilus workout machines proved to be very similar to Gustav Zander's exercise machines, In the 1970s, Arthur Jones invented machines known as Nautilus to aid with high-intensity training. The Nautilus workout machines proved to be very similar to Gustav Zander's original exercise machines, but Jones insisted that he made these discoveries without any knowledge of Zander's discoveries. Okay, dude. All right, whatever you say. Now... Exercise equipment has come a long way, but they here are just a, just a handful of things that should have never been invented. And I think you remember the late night ads, the late night commercials, and the late night infomercials for these few um, for these few products. Because I remember them; they were absolutely ridiculous contraptions and sold to a public desperate to get fit. Skechers shape-ups. Now, that wasn't really an infomercial, but this was Skecher, Skechers shoes. Really, really, really dropped a bomb with these shoes. Skechers Shoe Company tried to trick the public into thinking that these ugly shoes would give them better butts. Uh, no. That's a no. <laughs> Working out would help, and walking is good, but these shoes aren't going to make your butt look better. No, that's not how it works. I remember so many fell for these stupid shoes. They were ugly, ugly shoes, and they're not going to make you make your butt look bigger. You walk in a pair of shoes is not going to make your rear end look better. That's not how it works. And then Skechers had to take them off after that huge class action lawsuit, which they lost. So well done, Skechers. <laughs> really, really good work there. <laughs> Thigh master. Remember that thing? Remember that? Oh, my goodness. promised to strengthen and tone thighs. (laughs) You can't spot target fat. It can't be done. No, can't be done. Ab toning belt. Yet remember you put on the belt and you just magically lose weight. Just magically lose your fat. Because why work at losing weight when you can just wear a belt? If If that's all it took to lose weight, Everyone would wear that belt and no one would be fat. 
It's why do people fall for this stuff? Please stop being lazy. It's not going to happen. And the worst one of all, the shake weight. Do you remember that? It was, it was that, that, that weight thing that you shake with your hand and it looks more like a porno film than it did an exercise <laughs> equipment. Oh my gosh. It was like, really? <laughs> Are you serious? People must have bought it because it was around for even more than a hot minute. It was like, are you kidding? People actually buy that? No, 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 no. Don't fall for that stuff. And now we have those Goomies and Oprah sells. Well, Oprah sells anything. Sorry. If she will sell anything. If there's a dollar in it for her, she'll sell it. Doesn't matter what it is. She'll sell it. With those Goomies, yeah, take a Goomy candy every day and you lose weight. No, that's not how it works. Doesn't work that way. Sorry, but that's not a piece of equipment. It doesn't work that way. There's no no magic. There's no magic in a piece of exercise equipment. There's no magic in anything. All right. <laughs> okay, Martha. <sighs> but it, exercise gear has come a long way and it's it's fun it's fun to to see the history of it, especially like treadmills. It's really, really interesting to find out that it actually started as something to given to prisoners. It makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> so that is the history of exercise and exercise gear. I started my running again up this week. I've only been out a couple times, so it's just started. It not like I've done it a bunch of times, but it, it feels really good. And I'm very, very happy to be back at it. And I'm going very slow. My my um, physical therapist gave me a really nice starting out program to follow. So I'm going to follow it very, very closely. I had dropped my gym, my 24-hour fitness membership a few months ago because I just couldn't afford to to pay the regular membership price and pay off my uh, my medical bill. Well, couple, last week I got a a special rate to come back to 24 hour fitness and it was like half of what I was paying, even more than half of what I was paying. So I said, okay, well, if I get a special deal, I'll just go back and then I can do do a bunch more uh, running at treadmills after work. I picked up my membership again so I can keep doing that. So I can go back and, and I can actually join again. So I will be back at the gym. So it's kind of cool how that worked out. I pay like even less than half. So I started that up. So I'll be back at the gym on that treadmill on the prison torture device. <laughs> I think I'll call it that from now on. But yeah, it, it my, the couple times I've gone out, it's felt pretty good. I'm going slow, taking it very, very slow, not pushing it, not doing anything else other than what the training program that she gave me has me doing, and um, I'll be okay. So I hope, so that is good, and I'll tell you how it's going as I go along. I'll write, I'll, I, I'm going to write a bit about it in my blog this week. I put out a blog, besides the podcast here i put out a blog once a week 
I usually get it out on a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, so check the website, MarthaRunsTheWorld.com, for that. And everything is uh, everything's on there. If you want to check out anything on the website, it's all there. And that is it for the show. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you have a wonderful running week. And until next week, let's tie up your shoelaces and go for a run.